Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This episode has been recorded at BreakoutCon 2018, Toronto's premier tabletop gaming convention for board games and role-playing games. This recording has been made possible thanks to the organizers of BreakoutCon and the fine contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 148, Making Your First RPG. Presented by Mark Richardson, Anna Kreider, Emily Griggs, and Misha Bushager. Moderated by Jonathan Lavely. All right, thank you. This is Making Your First RPG. I'll be your moderator. My name is Jonathan Lavalley, and I will introduce my panelists going from left to right. Uh, to my immediate left is Anna Kreider. Um, Anna Kreider is an illustrator, writer, and game designer of games like Thou But a Warrior, Autonomy, and The Watch. She has also freelanced for a number of companies like Wizards of the Coast, Hellgrain Press, Green Ronin, and is formed the former author of the populist, popular feminist gaming blog Go Make Me a Sandwich. To her right is Misha Bouchager. Is, who is a longtime gamer and GM working on raising the next generation of geeklings. She's written for multiple games including Chill, Save, Lovecraft-esque, and Dead Scare, and was an editor of the award-rooming Hashtag Feminism Collection of Nano Games. She blogs gaming-inspired fiction at blackgirlgameworks.com and is one of the founders of New Agenda Publishing. To her right is Mark Richardson, who is a professional cartographer and game designer. He won an Emmy in 2017 <laughs> for his cartography of the seventh second edition RPG. <laughs> I feel like I'm never going to live this down. Yeah. Yeah. And he designed and kickstarted and published his first RPG, Headspace. Mark has navigated the numerous challenges with publishing his first book. Just ask him how his shipping went for his great success story. And to his right, Emily Griggs, who is a writer and illustrator who has freelanced for a variety of gaming companies in both roles. She's also participated in the Game Chef game design competition three times, placing as a finalist twice, and as the English language winner once. She's written a webcomic and writes and illustrates in a line of nerd-themed greeting cards under the business name Sweet Ingenuity. So our panelists, everyone. There are seats in the front. We don't, yeah. Come on, we don't bite. Up. You're on the other side of a table. We can't get to you easily. There's electronics in the way. Exactly. So yes. what we're going to do, format-wise, is we're going to put some questions to our panelists that we have predetermined. And then what we're going to do is we're then going to open it up to the floor. All right? So uh, we're going to just throw this out to two people. I'm going to say, Emily, what inspires you to make an RPG? Oh, uh, good question. Um, Mostly I tend to start working on a story when I realize there's a game I want to play and it doesn't exist yet. And usually that's when I've watched a piece of media or sort of a genre of media and I think, I could turn this into a game. Usually it's, it's definitely always a game I want to play, not a game I want to run, which can be really annoying when it comes to playtesting. <laughs> but it's usually, yeah, I've, there are other games on the market that might cover this, but none of them cover the specific aspect of it that makes me love it so much. And that's usually the core seed I try and turn into a game. So Misha, how, how about you? Uh, I usually try to figure out where there aren't enough black people there, <laughs> or enough black women there, or enough uh, uh, underrepresented voices there, and then try to make it about them instead. Um, it's kind of an odd approach, but it works. So Mark, how about you? Um, 
Jeez. Well, I, I, I think it's, uh, like, there's only one, I've only published one game so far, but, I mean, very similar to that, to some of these answers, like, finding things that aren't out there. I mean, it's a great relief when you find something and you're like, someone's done this. Like, um, uh, I don't know, Quiet Year, for me, was like, I love geography and cartography and mapping, and I don't have to make a mapping game because the Quiet Year exists and it's amazing. And so there's certain times I look at some games and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to compete with that, or I, th why bother? But then I also look at other things and I'm like, well, there's nothing that's really like this, and how can I do that? Or I watch media, like I'm working on a, on a tank crew game right now, and it's I watched Fury and went, this is a D&D &D party stuck in a machine. And, 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 and then I'm like, how would that work? And, you know, and then you start asking yourself a lot of questions and uh, go from there. So Anna, how about you? Um, so I get my games in two different places, actually. Um, the first is, like the first game that I wrote, um, if I'm writing for a contest or something that has a general sort of theme, and then I kind of have to do a bunch of reading, and I kind of slowly build up an idea over time. Um, the second kind is the game that invades my brain and won't leave me alone, usually when I'm committed to working on the first kind of game. Um, and I, I have to tell it to go away, and it won't. Um, so, and those, those usually are media-inspired games. Um, like my, um, one of my recent LARPs, Factory Reset, was about my favorite accidentally <coughs> horrifying thing from Star Wars. Uh, and it's a game about sad robot feelings, and I literally wrote it in a week because I was just like, I, I have to get this shit for the watch done, I can't afford to... Fine, we're just gonna do this thing, and then I'm gonna go back to... So. So, uh, Misha, what are your first steps when you make an RPG? Uh, so first, um, usually it's a lot of either reading or watching TV or uh, watching movies. Um, just trying to figure out what it is that I'm trying to say um, or what it is I want to see. Um, like, uh, I most recently we went and saw Black Panther and we went and saw... Uh, Wrinkling time, and it's like, okay, Shuri is the girl that I needed to see when I was 12 years old, and A Wrinkle of Time is the movie I needed to see when I was 12 years old. How do I get that so that 12 year old me now can see it? Um, so it, it usually starts with a lot of media consumption and, and then distilling an idea down to what it is I want to say. Okay, Emily. Yeah, um, I agree with a lot of that, especially the kind of distilling and coming up with exactly what you need this game to be about. Because uh, often when I've got a game seed that's inspired by media, there's a lot of things going on in that piece. And it's really, for me, the first step, uh, especially with a larger game that's going to take a lot of time, is trying to say, what about this genre or what about this one piece I've seen needs to be the game I want to play? Because you can have a lot of stories where, like, say, just off the top of my head, say you were trying to turn... Um, uh, the Avengers movie into a game. Is the game that you want to write about great action action versus aliens? Is the game you want to write about superheroes having to bond over their differences? Is the game you want to write about um, like people with traumas having to deal with a new situation? Is the game you want to write about the world changing when it finds out that there's greater things in the world than they are? Uh, those are four very different themes, and they're going to lend themselves to four very different mechanics. And you might have some elements of all of them. But narrowing the game down right at the beginning to this is what my game is really about, this is what interests me personally about this piece I'm 
getting inspired from, I think is a really great place to start. So Anna, how about you? Um, well, if we, if we say the first step, I kind of tend to approach it from a bit of a structuralist angle in that the first thing I do is I determine what is the format that this idea needs to be expressed in. Um, because sometimes uh, a game idea is a LARP. Um, it's a situation that you play out over the course of, you know, two to three hours in a room and it doesn't really need any mechanics, it's just about creating a characters in a loaded situation and then watching them go. Um, sometimes it's the sort of idea where you say, no, this story needs to develop over the course of you know, a 10 to 15 sessions, in which case that's definitely a tabletop game. Um, but, you know, there's there's other aspects of, you know, you think about how, the, like, the engine that is going to make the story go. What what do I need to make the story go? If, if cards are part of that, then maybe it's a card-based um, game. So just kind of figuring out, like, okay, I have this game idea, but games can be lots of different things, so what kind of game am I designing? And I find that will answer a lot of questions from there. And Mark, um, I think like so going along like I agree with pretty well everything everybody already said, but like also like kind of figuring out what kind of experience you want to replicate at the table. Um, so like, you know, uh, oftentimes when we're watching media, one of the tricky things is like to go back to the Avengers. Like the Avengers is like an entertaining film, <coughs> but if you convert that that sort of experience to the table like as you say like what are you doing like i'm a big believer that every rpg certainly in the tabletop world does one thing does it well and that's it like you pick the one thing if your game does 10 things pick the one thing because it only does one thing and then it may do all sorts of other things but there's one really good thing that it defines that and then you keep going and that it's an important thing to go back to um, I think the other thing that I do, sort of first steps, um, is there's a couple of uh, really good lists, uh, like the Power 19 and things like this, that are sort of like uh, 10 to 15 to 20 questions. I can't remember the author that started them originally, but there's, uh, like basically it's like 20 questions you should ask yourself about like what your game does kind of thing. And you can't possibly answer all of them right at the beginning, but it, it, it causes you to like, you know, what are people playing for? What what happens when, what is loss in this game? Or something like that. Questions that make you think about the grand idea of what's going on and, and, and start you trying to move that ball forward. Right, and to keep on that kind of thing, because the next idea is, is that, because it seems to be an agreement that the idea is that you want to get down to a point. At least, you know, even if you come at it from a structuralist angle, it's still a, you have, want your game to do the thing that it does well. Um, I'm start, Misha, how do you stay on task to, to keep your game to that one thing, <laughs> right? Like, uh, it's a hard question, I know, but how do, how do you do it? Um, yeah, I really want to know. Well, because I, I just, Mark had that list of questions. Yeah, um, so, uh, like right now we're working on, on Arun, which is going to be our uh, Afrofuturistic take on space opera. And there's three of us, and it's three very different but very creative people. And so sometimes it's, all right, you've gone off on this tangent. All right, I need you to come back. <laughs> and sometimes it's, no, I'm going to go off on the tangent, and they'll root me back in. And so having a team helps. Um, but if you're doing it yourself, it's, I find, having um, either a Pinterest board or a mood board or something that says, 
this is what I'm doing. And when you're when you find yourself starting to stray, look back at that and go, okay, does that fit in with this vision? Sometimes the answer is no, and you need to add to it. Sometimes the answer is yes, and you just stay with it. And sometimes the answer is no, and you gotta say, okay, I gotta abandon that line. That might be for a later game. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a visual person, so I like having something that I can look at and see. Uh, it might be a, a checklist for you. It might be a, uh, you might have a um, bullet journal with your ideas. Um, but something tangible, I find, is, is easiest to say, this is what I'm working on. Does this fit with what I'm working on? Yes or no? Do I need to add it? Do I not need to add it? Emily, Emily, both Anne or both of you are nodding along. Uh, do you have anything you like, feel like adds to that? or? or? Yeah. Well, first off, I think a Pinterest board's a really cool idea. Um, <laughs> actually, um, I find my process is very different for when I'm writing a very short game versus when I'm writing a very long game. I'm working on, well, I've worked on a lot of games for Game Chef, and they're very short games. It's a competition that has a very strict word limit. And I find for games that really can get ac- be gotten across in a short amount, just having a word limit is a great way to force yourself to write less than you think you want to write. And you have to worry, like, is this paragraph necessary, or can I cut it to put something else in? Uh, for a longer game, which I'm also writing in a group, which is a great way to kind of keep yourself on task, basically every few months of design, we have to go back and say, how much of this game can we get rid of? Mm. Uh, and I would also say that in the process of getting rid of stuff, uh, yeah, sometimes you realize you have to get rid of stuff because it's not in, in line with your original theme. But for the one we're writing right now, um, we actually changed our theme halfway through. We realized we started writing a sort of gothic horror Victoriana game, and now we're writing a gothic horror Victoriana pulp game, where the characters have a lot more power and a lot more ability to change the world. And we found that as our kind of theme of like anti-colonialism and fighting against an oppressive regime started happening, that that was where we found the joy in the game. So I think that cutting your game down very regularly to stay on task, so you don't try, as you said, to do ten different things, because your game can really only do one thing, um, is a really good thing. But sometimes you might discover that the one thing your gaming is doing isn't the thing you thought your game was doing. I'm going to agree with Misha and disagree with Emily. Finally! We got uh, some good old... So, yeah, uh, for a bigger game, like, um, when you're uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Pinterest um, as, as a way of like establishing an aesthetic that you're aiming for. Um, personally, my process kind of, um, about the first third of developing a new game, um, when I'm really kind of assembling the alpha draft, is when I like to kind of distill like what is the essence of like the story that I want to tell, and being able to get that into as few words as possible. Um, so having just finished this with the watch, um, with the watch, our tagline that we got it down to was, it's about women and non-binary people destroying patriarchy. Um, and having that very clear and concise meant that at every point when we were considering major mechanical revisions, we could say, well, what is this mechanic? Um, is it getting in the way of telling this kind of story? Or is it facilitating this kind of story? Or is... Um, is it something that we need, but it's not quite up to the task and it needs to be modified to help uh, do the thing even more? Um, so that's kind of how I prevent myself from going off into the weeds on mechanical tangents or whatever, is just being able to clearly articulate what is the essence of the idea and then always remembering to ask yourself, well, okay, this thing might be really cool, uh, but does it help? 
right? And sometimes, like, sometimes you come up with your best shit that just doesn't fit in the thing that you're working on, and then you have to file it away, and it sucks, because you might not get it back, and... But that's a thing. Okay, so now uh, we've gone through a couple questions on this, and I'm going to open up to a Q&A from uh, our wonderful audience here. So if you have any questions for our panelists, put your hand up, and uh, we'll, we'll you know, have you say them, and we'll try to... So, yes? Uh, first of all, thank you very much for your time. Uh, so I'm working on the next generation of gamers. Uh, I've got a six-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter, and I'm just curious as to uh, what approaches you've seen to encourage younger children to bring them into gaming, and in particular, if you've seen it successful for other more, shall we say, established gamers to enjoy the experience as well uh, with them. So I'm just going to ask if the panel's okay with it, because it's kind of off topic for what the panel is. It's a good question, and it's something we, we can totally talk about, but this is about making a game rather than pushing. So I'm just, I'm, I'm going to let them decide if they're cool with that, or we're going to someone else to do the thing. So are we okay with everyone cool? We can talk about it a bit from yeah. a design perspective. Yeah. All right, cool. If you've then, got some things to say. Then, or... then, yeah, so Emily, we'll start with you, and then we'll work our way this way. I mean, I don't play with a lot of kids, but I would like to say that um, if you're, I mean, if you're interested in getting your kids into design specifically, that making your first RPG or making some rules for an RPG is something that a lot of kids do very naturally. Um, like I know when I was a kid, I was making very bad role-playing games, <laughs> and I mean, you're gonna have to go to another panel for getting them into the actual hobby in terms of playing, but. Encouraging them to think about rules and think about mechanics, and especially encouraging to them to believe that they have the ability to make up their own rules. Uh, I wish I'd, I guess, considered myself capable of making games a lot earlier than I was, because I feel like I went through years and years of actually being quite good at homebrew, and never really considering, hey, actually, I could put this out into the world, I could be a freelancer for this. And by the time I figured it out, I probably could have been even further in the field and made more stuff. So yeah, I definitely say like, you know, have your kids make up their own game, play it yourself, let them run it. And you'll find that kids do make up their own games oh, yeah. all the time. And just, you know, talk to them, ask them, hey, I see you're playing evil princesses today. Can you tell me a little more about that? What does that mean to you? It's like, what what, what do evil princesses do? And this is a game that my daughter and some of her friends played in, in preschool. So it's like... Hey, so so tell me more. What do you? And sometimes you get great ideas from them. Oh yeah. Um, like my Lovecraft death scenario was creepy things that kids say and what that could mean. Um, I like the princesses. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Um, the tears and everything would be great. Um, but also just um, uh, one of my favorite games to play with my kids. It's uh, and we're probably not playing it the, the game the way the game was intended. But it's called Superhero Bakery. And the way we play it is, we're superheroes, we're running a bakery. So we're going to make cookies, and I'm going to be the villain, and I'm going to try to sabotage the cookies while they're trying to make the cookies. And so it's a way to get, you know, you're making cookies, great, Nobody's good. who doesn't love cookies? But you're also incorporating that play. So you don't have to, it doesn't have to be like a fully thought out 90 page scenario. It's start with an idea. Um, I'll just briefly say, I think kids are the best freeform LARP designers there are, um, and I would just get, you know, say I want to play a game with you, what's the game, and let them invent the rules, and um, teach them, like, that's a way of teaching them how to play games, but, like, on their level, but also, like, gets them thinking about how, like, I can be someone that makes the games that other people play. 
I would say like one thing is like kids are not bound by the same restrictions that everybody else in this room are, which is we have a lot of preconceived notions of what a game is. They don't have this. They have none of this. And so like it's not just that they will give you the most amazing exposition on backgrounds, but when which they will, but they won't be restricted by oh well you can't do that because that doesn't make any sense. It makes sense in there, so and I mean it, it, it just builds from there. Like um, and that and that's a great freedom. But Okay, that's great, thank you. Question in the back. Um, I'm curious what the biggest obstacles you guys have run into in getting your games to an audience other than Mark's shipping issues. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, um, Anna. Oh gosh. Uh, okay, so um, I write games about challenging subjects. Um, I write a lot of games about um, patriarchy. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, and really one of um, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, but one of the big things that I kind of run into that um, I'm kind of trying to tackle in a bigger way is uh, the reluctance of... So there's a thing that happens when a marginalized person writes a game that is by, like, that is ostensibly about marginalized people, and so there's this double whammy that happens where um, men, and especially white men, sorry guys, but it's just true. Um, they see these games and then they think, well, I can't, I can't run these games, or even I can't play these games. Um, and, and, and so they just kind of languish and don't have any kind of commercial success. It's very difficult to get, um, games that tackle, that, that are by and about marginalized people, like, to have any kind of commercial success. And, like, um... I mean, the money in RPG publishing is bad. I want to be upfront about that. But like, but like, we can't do it for free, right? Like, there has to be some kind of compensation. So, um, honestly, that's been my biggest issue in terms of getting. I've written some really good games that I'm still super proud of that have just kind of died from a lack of attention, and I've just had to move on um, because they were they had too many girl cooties, and that's a problem that. Um, I think as a community we don't we haven't solved yet. Misha. Yeah, it's c pretty similar. It's like um, we just announced uh, New Agenda Publishing uh, January uh, January first, be specific. Um, and <laughs> but the first like the first comment I ever got on my personal blog was, "I see you're excluding white guys." A, we never said that. <laughs> B, I'm married to a white guy. We like white guys. They're okay. C, it's like, look, just because we are black and we are going to try to promote people who aren't like you doesn't mean we don't like you. We understand that 90, okay, like 75, 80% of the market is white guys. This is not... A, a surprise. This is not a, a uh, massive revelation. We've been doing this for a while. We've been playing for, you know, in, in my case, more than half my life at this point. So when we put out an idea that's slightly off the norm, and the assumption is because it's not the norm, it's not for me, 
it's very frustrating. It's very um, odd. It's like we're not trying to make you like us. We're trying to show you what uh, what we are like, and to show you what we are like means you kind of would we made the game so that it is easy for you to play um and so uh, having that that instant oh hey there's cooties around it to to use anna's term which is a great term girl cooties is pretty much the perfect term because you know i've got a six-year-old that's almost like he thinks um to, to have that instant stigma against it just because it comes from somebody who doesn't look like you is weird and, and trying to get past that barrier is, is odd. So, Mark? Um, geez, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of this from different angles. I mean, uh, like, part of that is, like, I don't, I don't experience that, right? Like, I mean, like, it's, it's, you know, Joe White dude, so it's like, I just do a thing, and it's, it's like, I'm very cognizant of the experiences some of my, my friends in the, in the community have because it's a completely different experience. I will um, sort of say, like, from a... Um, just like a really difficult thing that I, I find in working on games is finishing it. I mean, it sounds really ridiculous, but I mean, whenever I look at most people who are working on their first game design, it, it we're completely incapable of actually declaring when this thing is done. Um, and I found what I did uh, was um, I gave myself sort of, I created artificial deadlines for my work and the artificial deadlines I did where I picked uh, different conventions throughout the year that I planned to go to, and I said, I will have the next version of this game for that convention. Now, I haven't said what that next version is. I've just said, wherever the game is, I'm going to make a printout, and that will be version 1.1 or 1.2. And then you kind of commit yourself to doing a thing. It's good to give yourself some kind of deadline to work in and create a thing. Game Chef is fantastic for that because you have a week, 4,000 words, finish it, period, you know? And uh, it's, um, you know, like, I, th I mean, the, the adage is that, you know, when you hate, when you're, sick of, when you're sick of your game, you're done. You know, I mean, that's partly true, but um, a lot of it is, is uh, you know, when, I mean, the, the way I think when you can tell your game is done is when someone other than you can run your game without you in the room, and everybody else has fun. Now, I didn't say they experience it the same way you would maybe make them experience it, but if, if somebody else can experience the game and enjoy it, and you're not in the room, then you've succeeded, you know? Um, Emily, so. Um, well, first off, I'll address the point that you guys made, because I've definitely run into that before. And I've been in the somewhat tragic, tragic situation more than once of having a game, say, preparing signature characters that you're going to use to display the game and having a group where we say, well, none of us are straight, most of us are women or non-binary, not all of us are white, um, but we're going to have to make sure that one or more of these signature characters is a cishet white guy, and we're going to have to use them heavily in the marketing. And that's a little, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily bad, and it is a, it is a, a useful marketing tool, and, you know, we can still make sure that the rest of the signature characters are very interesting and represent a wider number of people. But it is a little tragic that that's something that we have to do still sometimes. And there's not really a great solution to that, because every solution has some kind of unfortunate bits right now. 
Um, that said, I'll also second what you do, because again, my games are pretty mainstream, so that's not always my biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll say just for anyone who's creating a game, that the last 20% of making your game, the part where you think it's almost done, is going to take 80% of your time. I know it's a common rule, the 20-80 thing, but the challenge, like getting the text done or getting the basic rules done and getting the playtesting done, you think, oh, it's basically finished now, right? Mm. No, you're just starting. I'm really good. sorry. <laughs> um, and one of the best ways to get over that and also get a feel for that is try and start with a short game if you can because it's a lot easier to finish it and once you've put something out into the world and it's free and people can pay for it or donate for it or even just download it, um, or pay what you can or whatever. Uh, it's very freeing to be able to say, yes, that game wasn't perfect. Yes, I still see flaws, but it's done. And the world hasn't exploded. And that will really help getting through the 20% slog at the end of your bigger game, the one you really want to make. And it's huge. And the one final point I want to make, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just, there will be no perfect game, okay? Just accept that from the beginning. Um, um, so if, if, if you've got it and people are enjoying it, yeah, you're probably going to have a misspelled word somewhere. <laughs> that Those are the easy ones to find. But don't like sit there and constantly obsess over every single detail over and over and over. Because all you're doing is holding it up. Just Sometimes you just have to let it go and let it be. Um, yeah, I just wanted to sidebar. Um, I'm grateful to Emily mentioning um, what she did. Uh, with regards to getting started uh, in making games, uh, hack someone else's shit. Don't, like seriously, <laughs> we have the advantage of like 40 years of tabletop game design. It is insane to reinvent the wheel every single time when there are perfectly serviceable like innovations that are lying around and waiting to be used. Um, so a lot of my success as a game designer has just been really owning that. Like I ran into, um, Nathan uh, Pauletta, the designer of uh, Worldwide Wrestling, er earlier today, and I like, was excited to tell him, like, I'm totally stealing a huge section of your game, dude. and he was like, awesome! <laughs> yeah, I told him the concept, and he's like, no, that makes way more sense. Like, have fun. Um, so, for your first game, like, take, like, find a game that does, like, 75% of what you want to do, and, like, hack it off, and, and then add on from there. Like, I, I think that's the best way to really get started making your own stuff. Um, I want to add on to that, just for people who don't have a lot of game designer community experience, all game designers love it when you steal from them. Yes. It's yes. actually a very It's a very compliment. Um, it's a very different community from something like writing or even video game design, where there's a lot of like, oh, you've got to be original, you can't show your, your sources very much. Like, I stole a huge chunk of my first Game Chef game from one of Jonathan Lavalier's game, and he hasn't complained to me yet, he still talks to me. I think it was great. Uh, <laughs> I was like, well, yes, and, uh, please. Um, I've been on professional game developing forums talking with people for larger companies where the d discussion is like, yeah, what can we steal from Fate? What can we steal from Powered by the Apocalypse? What can we steal from this indie game that we loved and played? And the community's very forward as that, as long as you're adapting it to the game you, you're making. Uh, it's a hobby industry, everyone's really chill. So, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I, it goes back to that one thing that always it's always worth mentioning, which is there's only one patent in all of gaming. One. One. Which is tap for a magic card. Is you're not allowed to use the word you tap. You are now. Oh, you are now. Yes, that, okay. that patent has expired. But so this is the point, old. though. <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> fair enough. But like, uh, you're making your first role-playing game. Probably nobody knows who you are. Uh, they don't know what this game is. If you want people to sign an NDA or you don't want to talk about the game because it's super secret, 
that's okay as long as you're fine with no one ever playing it. You know, you want other people to be exposed to this. You want to have a crappy playtest at a con and someone go, that was a lot of fun. I'd like to see where you're going with it. And then they sign up at the very next con you're going to because they want to see where it's gone. That, you cannot buy that publicity. You know, that is what you want. You want people to be interested and driven about whatever it is you're creating. So that was one of the questions we had down, so I'm just going to go back to this one. So talking about structure, right? Like, not reinventing the wheel, right? Where do you look to not reinvent the wheel? Like, what are your particular go-tos for things that you're like, this is something that, that I like to look at again and again and again. So, Misha. So I play a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse, um, and um, it's it's one of it's the one I can grok easiest. Um, like I'm still kind of iffy on grokking faith. I've played a couple of games and I'm starting to get it now, but it's still not as intuitive to me. Whereas the Powered by the Apocalypse stuff really clicked with me early. Um, so I have found that there are so many different implementations of just that basic hey, here's a move, you're going to roll 2d6, if it's in this range, this is it. And so writing a move is a lot easier than writing a game. So start with writing a set of moves. Okay, now you've got moves. Now make a playbook for a game that you like. Okay, you've made a playbook. Now you can make a whole game, because now you've understood the, the, the basics and the core um, of what it is you're trying to say about it. Um, like Monster Hearts and Urban Shadows, they're both games about werewolves and vampires and everything else, but they're very different games with the same structure. Um, but they tell very different stories, and 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 that to me is the it was is was the easiest way to to get into it and get to learning. Um, I also tend to start with the fiction and then work backwards to the moves, um, but that's because I'm a fiction writer by background more than anything else um, than a game writer by background. Yeah? How about you? Uh, I mean, Powered by the Apocalypse has eaten most of my tabletop design brain space lately. Um, but, like, my first game that I ever published, Art But a Warrior, was actually um, a hack of Ben Lehman's Polaris, um, which is a, game, a tragedy game about um, elves at the North Pole, basically. Um, and I was like, hey, that's really cool, but what if I just like change the setting to be about Reconquista era Spain and like the only change I made to it was uh, besides the setting was I added um, a doomsday clock um, which uh, the original Polaris doesn't have any kind of condition the story just ends when everybody thinks it's over um, but this has a mechanical end of when this happens the Christians invade and burn everything to the ground the game is over now um, and it wasn't, like, a huge change. Um, so, I mean, I think there's definitely something to be said of if you play a game that you really like and it reminds you of, oh, it would be really cool if I did this but slightly to the left. Um, do that. Um, make your make your game about that thing but slightly to the left. Um, that is, like, it's how I got started. It's how a lot of people I know, um, especially as marginalized people, uh, designers, um, you know, I feel like that's a more accessible way because it kind of gives you permission to uh, to start with something uh, less scary before you kind of work up to like, okay, I have a game idea from scratch that I'm gonna build all on my own now. So, Mark, how about you? Um, I would sort of caution one thing with things like PBTA and well, just everything. Like I used PBTA-ish when when I did my thing is don't get too attached. One, like one of the problems 
I find that I even had, and I've seen this in a lot of my friends who are designing with other pre-established systems, is you think that you need the entire engine. You do not. You're making your game. So you uh, figure out what it is that you want the game to do and use those parts. There's And just blow away the other things. Because you'll find a lot of things where, like, I mean, a really simple example is, uh, you know, uh, 95% of all PPTA games have health tracks. Why? Most of the time it's because the game before it had a health track. That's actually the answer. It's not, um, and, and, and I did that even in my game at one point in time, and then I was like, well, this doesn't really add to the original game. Like, my game's all about emotions. So I was like, well, why don't I just say, instead of having health tracks, when you take damage, you take damage to your emotions. So you get angrier, at, like you go through a plate glass window, you take two points of rage. Oh, well, this is amazing. I've gotten rid of a, a mechanic that was clunky and embraced the central theme of my game. And uh, so definitely don't let that... Um, this, this is more of an advanced concept, but like when you start playing around in that hacking sphere, you know, know that you are making your game and feel comfortable with doing that. Emily? Okay, I'm going to give an oddly specific example, and I'm not sure how many people can duplicate this. I have two dear friends who are role-playing in board game encyclopedias. They will read every game they can get their grubby little hands on. And they're not grubby, they're actually great people. So if you're listening to this, I love you guys both. Uh, and then they will explain to me in loose detail the rules of the game they just enjoyed playing or reading or whatever. Uh, and I soak it all in. And I get a mediocre understanding of a bunch of really interesting and very varied game techniques and games, game rules. And I love it. And I actually, I don't really read a lot of game books in my spare time. But this kind of half-understood symbiosis has been amazing for me in terms of taking those game sets and interpreting them the way I, I feel like interpreting them. And so I'm not sure if anyone else can duplicate that, but definitely going to shows and asking people how their games went, including games that aren't the same ones you want to write. Like um, board games have a lot of amazing mechanics that role-playing games can co-opt. And sometimes video games even have some interesting mechanics that you can kind of tweak and make work for something. So um, I guess this kind of ties into, especially what you were saying about you know grabbing stuff and mm -hmm. like reading new systems and don't feel free to take from them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess a, a weird tip is um, if you're able to read Wikipedia entries or talk to people about their games and get a half-formed idea about it, don't feel like you need to understand the whole thing. Sometimes that's good and you can just misinterpret it and make something new. All right, so that's going to open. I think we have time. Uh, we have 20 minutes so, or close because there's earlier. So we're going to put some questions up. So uh, I'm going to go to the person back there and then for you right here. You, sorry, yes, okay. yes, it's you. Um, let's say you have your game, you've play tested it, you've got it all set up. What is the best, I don't know, best way uh, to actually get it published and out to people in order for them to try to actually <laughs> get your game? So I'm going to put this out to, to two people, and then we're going to get the other questions. So um, okay. Anna, I know, and then Misha, if you can do this one, and then we'll get the other question. Uh, okay, so my answer is always publish it yourself. Um, I, uh, as mentioned in my intro, I have freelance for big companies. Um, I actually made more money 
with my stupid dungeon world hack called Sexy Time Adventures, the RPG, the game where men are men and the women are sexy. Um, <laughs> that tells you how serious this game is. I made more money from publishing that than I did off of uh, a big, like, 20,000-word project for uh, Onyx Path. So um, it doesn't, you know, um, if you publish it yourself, you get to keep all the money. Um, that said, uh, I mean, publishing uh, doesn't have to look all one way. It doesn't mean the glossy hardcover, uh, 8x10, like 200-page, uh, you know, like um, fully produced thing. Um, there's outlets like DriveThruRPG. Um, you can make a PDF of your game and put it online um, that way. Uh, you can sell copies of it through Lulu, right? Where if you do want a physical book, but you don't have the cash to sink into a print run, um, you can do that. Um, but also, if you do have something where you want to, um, you know, hire, you, you do want to have a higher production value. You do want to hire uh, a layout artist and an artist and, and really do a proper job of it. Um, Kickstarter is an amazing tool for democratizing game design. Um, it has really allowed for a lot of more diverse uh, voices in terms of who gets to make those games with the very high production values. Um, and there are lots of people who have been through the Kickstarter rodeo a lot of times and who have written about it copiously on the internet. Seriously, there's so much out there in terms of learning how to do stuff. But also there are people who are happy to provide that mentorship um, if that's something that you're looking for. Um, so I guess my, my answer is figure out what, what publishing means to you. What do you want the final form factor to look like? And then kind of work backwards um, from there, um, because not not every game needs to be that huge 200-page thing. Some games are just the stupid 20-page PDF, uh, ridiculous Dungeon World hack that you put on drive-through and people weirdly pay for it, and you're kind of confused. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Um, but then sometimes you have something like, um, you know, I I've done five Kickstarters at this point, three of them for games and two of them for other things that ended up in physical books. So um, there's definitely a lot of experience out there um, that can that can help you through this process if, if you decide that that's what you want to do. And then you get to keep all the money. <laughs> um, so a couple of things. Uh, definitely decide what, it, what publishing means to you. If publishing means the book, then um, the, figure out what you want that book to look like. But publishing can be as easy as a PDF. Publishing can be as easy as um, setting up a website. You can get a free um, WordPress account um, and, and you know offer it as pay what you want uh, with a PayPal account. You can um, do a little more production value and have it as a, a you know flowable PDF and, and put it on drive through RPG. Again, it's they don't, I don't think they charge much to put it up there. Yeah. Um, it's it's so actually it just takes a piece it's of a percentage. Yeah, so it's, it's a percentage, it's a percentage but you'll still get the rest of the profit from it. Um, if you are more interested in other, like more of the resources, um, there are organizations like the IGDN. There are organizations um, that will do more mentorship to help you bring those production values up um, and, and make it into that you know 200-page glossy hardcover. Um, these are going to sound like contradictory statements. Don't be afraid to do it yourself, 
but if you can, hire somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, also, sorry, just to plug myself, I did write about this a couple years ago, like almost 10,000 words, so if you go to Go Make Me a Sandwich, um, you can search for uh, advice for looking to get into uh, advice for women looking to get into game design, and it's very step by step. Uh, here's every kind of what publishing looks like, and advice for kind of what things you need to think about and what processes you need to go through. So, yeah. like, I mean, if you're, you're if you're a great writer but you suck at drawing, don't try to do the art yourself. Know your strengths. I mean, if you want to put, you know, if you want to do some stick figure art, that can be charming. Like, they've made an entire web series out of XKCD. I mean, stick figures can work, but make sure it's an intentional choice. Um, so if you can afford to hire somebody, great. If you want to try it yourself, though, feel free to do that, too. Mark, I was just going to say, like, plan, uh, not exactly this, but kind of plan for the low success state and build a plan that goes on top of that. So like really simple example is, you know, let's say you have a card game and a lot of people will be like, okay, I need $35,000 on my Kickstarter to do the, the thousand prints that I'm going to need to do for this 60 card game. No, if this is your first game, no one's probably heard of you or, or played that game before. You're going to have a very hard time getting that. It's just not probably that realistic. So then you look at, well, well, what could I do? I could do print-on-demand. Well, now, print-on-demand means you have a digital thing. You People can go to a website and print the cards themselves. Well, now you don't need a, a, enough money to do a thousand print run. You just need to have a nice card set. And here's the thing is, then you do your Kickstarter for, like, I need $4,000 to do this, which is much more likely to fund. And then let's say for whatever reason, because your ideas are cool and the mechanics gel, this becomes popular. So your $4,000 Kickstarter grows and then maybe at some point you're like, hmm, you know, I have enough money to do that print run, you know, and to do those things. So, you know, like if you plan for the perfect, you know, expectation, you know, like I have a saying, I always use a saying, expectations are just premeditated resentments, you know? So, um, you know, I, I give yourself like goals and space to grow, um, but look at what that minute, what's that minimum marker to get that thing that you want out there. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry, do you mind if yeah. you go to the question right here? Sure. Um, so as someone who works much better in a group than on my own, I'd like to know what sort of lessons you guys have learned about the creative process, uh, especially with regards to how to capitalize on each other's strengths and make the most of what everyone knows. So I'm going to give this to Misha and Emily. Sure. Um, so uh, the, the group I'm working with now, it's um, Ilo Lasanta, uh, Jerry Grayson, and myself. Um, we're, we're doing a game. Uh, and Aloy is great at mechanics. Jerry is great at the overall arching, hey, this is what we're doing, and I'm really good at the nitty-gritty. And we figured that out early, just by, you know, talking it through. It's like, so, hey, I see you're, okay, Jerry, come, you gotta come back, you gotta work with me here, we're, we're pulling it back down, how does that work? And so, some of it is just talking it out. If, you, if you're, if, be willing to say, hey, I will be responsible for this thing. And so if that thing is, hey, I will be responsible for doing all the fiction blurbs at the beginning of the chapters, because I feel like I'm strongest at that. If it's, hey, I want to take the mechanics section, um, uh, and, and I think I can do a good job. And then 
hopefully, if you're in a group that's good, you will respect each other's decisions. You will be honest with each other and say, okay, look, I love you, but I've seen your fiction. And no, <laughs> no, honey, I can't let you do that to me. Uh, so, but most of it is trusting who you work with. Um, if you trust who you work with, it, it's easier to work together. If you're not comfortable working with them, then you probably shouldn't be in that group in the first place. Yeah, um, I'm working with a group right now, uh, also with friends, writing a Gothic World, which is our Powered by the Apocalypse, Gothic Pulp, etc. Um, I think one of the biggest experiences we learned kind of halfway through the process is leadership is a job. And it's really hard work, and not everyone's good at it, but it's very useful to have someone, even in a group of friends who are all really co-equal, who's got that final, I'm making this decision, especially if you've got an odd number of people, or like two people who tend to disagree a lot. I'm making the decision, um, I respect all of your things, and they're all both good ideas, but this is what we're doing. And someone who's able to do that without tearing the group apart is incredibly useful to have. And I'm not that person for my group. And it was, you know, especially as the person with the most publication credits in my group, that was a little hard for me to admit that that wasn't my strength. But being able for all of us to sit down as a group of friends and say, hey, this is something that this one person of us is good at, we're going to assign it to her, and, and you know, I'm very good at writing pithy short things, so I'm going to get a lot of those, and this guy's very good at writing longer things that might need to get trimmed down but have a lot of depth and flavor, so they're going to get those. Um, and being able to admit and have a place where you can admit those things, especially the leadership where there's often some kind of ego involved in it, is incredibly good for getting a group to kind of like slow down and work together. Also, have an agenda for your meetings. Mm. This is the number one thing I've learned. Have have regular meetings and make sure, uh, like most of the time when we have them, uh, we rotate who is in charge of the who's in charge of the meeting that week. Um, but having an agenda will keep you from having three-hour meetings where you go off on forty different topics and don't actually get anything done. Okay, so we've hit the five-minute marks. So what I'm going to do is uh, five minutes up. I'm going to give it um, all our panelists get one last kind of like say, did you have ideas on making your own RPG, kind of pitch whatever you're doing right now, and uh, we'll start uh, this way across. Anna? Uh, okay. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> uh, let me talk about what I'm doing right now and come as a way to stall for time on what I think I might have missed. Um, so the game that I'm uh, working on right now is uh, powered by the apocalypse hack of... Um, uh, Exalted Abyssals. Um, I ran some playtests of it that went really well at uh, Metatopia. Um, unfortunately, uh, I realized that I, I had to rip one complete part of it out and remake it. Uh, that's the part I'm stealing from Worldwide Wrestling. So, um, uh, so yeah, no, uh, that's kind of... Um, I'm terrible at titles, so I'm calling it Death Knights right now, but it probably won't be named that if someone <laughs> thinks of a better title uh, for I, it. I, I play Death Knights. <laughs> totally play Death Knights. <laughs> titles. Um, as far as... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, um, like, the best way to start making games is just to make a game. Um, and, like, uh, don't mess around with this whole, like, I can't make games because whatever. Um, as a hobby, we, like, lionize the same small collection of, uh, white dude designers, and, um, there are some people in the community who especially move the goalposts to include anything that's not by like so it only includes white dudes and 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 um, it if especially if you're someone who's marginalized um, it can result in feeling like well I don't have permission 
to make games or like why well, I'm not really a game designer like like true story I published my first role-playing game as in had physical books to sell people and for two years after that I would argue with people when they called me a game designer um, that's messed up don't so just just make games if you if you have an idea for a game like just make it um, don't worry about it if it you know well, am I allowed to be a game designer or is any like screw it just just make it yeah uh, if you are a game designer when you say you are a game designer um, the end uh, if you if you've written if you've gone out and played cowboys and Indians in the backyard and come up with rules for it you're a game designer congratulations I will sign your card um, uh, actually um, uh, Epi uh, Ravishul had actual cards that said I, this person is officially a game designer, so you could now have a card that you are a card-carrying game designer, and he will sign it, or any other anybody else you respect as a game designer will sign it for you. Um, so yeah, just make the game. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to. It just has to be a game. Um, the first rule, the first draft is probably not going to be great. It's okay. Play it anyway. Um, as for what I'm working on, uh, too many projects at the moment. Um, I'm finishing up a playset for Mass: The Next Generation. Uh, I'm finishing up stuff for Part Time God Second Edition. Uh, what else am I doing? We're doing a rune, which hopefully will kickstart later this year. And there's something else. Oh, Nightingales. Hey, how did I forget Nightingales? Uh, which is our uh, LARP about uh, women nurses in wartime. Cool. Sorry, we're down to a minute, so we just want to talk fast. Talk fast. I would how, say. How we just start? Oh, with just pitch no, yourself. Uh, no, but I would say, like in terms of the best advice I could give is, there's one convention called Metatopia. Mm. If you consider your, if you if you are working on a game, just go to it. Just figure out how much, how you can get the money. You can apply. If you don't have money, there's different groups like the IGDN that will sponsor you to go and go. Um, and it's a design, it's an analog design conference about making LARPs, board games, card games, and role-playing games. It's amazing. There's more panels, more ideas, more things than anything else. Go to conventions, meet people, talk to people. We're all on, you know, various electronic things, and people are more than happy. Like, you can drop people a line on Twitter, and they'll be more than happy to say something. Um, yeah, my one, one piece of advice, um... Ideas are cheap in the end. Mm -hmm. um, I strongly recommend making a short game first if you can, just to get it under your belt. But if you've got a really cool idea you want to do, you're good enough to do it now, or maybe after like one other game. So don't hold on in your two ideas too long because you're waiting for it to be perfect, because as you said earlier, perfect is the enemy of good. Uh, All right, and so thank you everyone for coming. Uh, we thank you our panelists, and uh, enjoy your